ask this for the kids, but for all of us as well. When you do something nice for someone, do you want to be recognized? If someone else does something nice and they get recognized, does that potentially make you feel jealous? It's possible, right? Here's a further question. Would you be willing to lie to get that same sort of recognition? In the passage that we're going to look at this morning, we see two examples. The first is of a man who seems to have genuinely cared for other people. The second is a husband and wife, a couple who wanted to look like they genuinely cared for other people. But God saw the hearts of all three of them, and we get a glimpse, too, based on God's response to these things. And as we get to this passage here at the end of Acts chapter 4, you might read through it and think that it is primarily about money or houses or even doing charitable acts, kind things for other people. And those things are certainly involved, but the more important issue at stake is whether we really and truly follow God or whether we act like we follow God so that people will think well of us. And so if you're not already there, turn to Acts chapter 4. We'll start in verse 32. The first principle that I think that we see from these verses, particularly verses 32 through 37 here at the end of Acts 4, the first principle is this. Share what God has loaned to you. Share what God has loaned to you. And I think from the first few verses here, verses 32 to 35, I think we see this as well underneath that, which is that the unity of our hearts leads to unity of our resources, of what we do with the things that God has given to us. Unity, first of all, in the church leads to willingly helping others. Verse 32, the congregation of those who believed were of one heart and soul, and not one of them claimed that anything belonging to him was his own, but all things were common property to them. So what is the boundary of this charity? To us it seems strange, this idea that uh, people would share their goods in common. It almost seems a cult-like or some sort of really strange practice. What was the boundary? The boundary was the congregation of those who believed. And so it was limited to those of a specific local gathering of people who followed Christ. What was the nature of this? The nature of it is found at the end of verse 32, all things were common property. Now, to clarify a couple of misconceptions at this point, this does not mean that everyone who belonged to the church sold everything that they had. How do we know that? Well, first of all, because in Acts 12, 12, we see people gathered at Mary's house. And the fact that it's called Mary's house means that it still belongs to her. So here she's part of this congregation, presumably, and they're still gathering at her house. So it doesn't seem that everyone in the church sold everything that they had. And I think when we get into chapter 5, that will become more clear as well. What it does mean is that the church viewed their resources collectively instead of individually and use them to meet specific needs. We see this in uh, verses 34 and um, 35. For there was not a needy person among them, for all who were owners of land or of houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet and they would be distributed to each as any had need. Now again, this doesn't mean that everything that belongs to every person in this room should be put in a common bank account and we just take out whatever we need when we need it. I don't think that that's the point that this passage is driving at. I think what this is doing is correcting the mindset that we sometimes have, 
particularly in our culture and potentially in their culture as well, which is the things that I possess are mine, they belong to me, they're for me, and no one else has any claim to them. That is our common perspective. But in reality, God has, to a certain extent, not given us everything that we have. He has loaned it to us. Why do I say that? Because we have it for a specified period of time. We don't know the duration of that time, but the duration of the time that we have the things that we have is the span of our lives. What happens after that? They no longer belong to us. They may belong to our kids. They may belong to some organization. They may belong to the government, depending on how much planning we do before we get to that point. But those resources are only ours for a limited period of time. And so the question for us is less about what do I do with my stuff and more about what do I do with God's stuff that he's loaned to me. And so I think this is the perspective that we see in this passage. It wasn't, let's put, sort of put it in this common pool and take stuff out, so much as it was, this doesn't belong to me, this isn't just for me, what I have from God is to be used to accomplish his work. In their specific context, it was people who had need in the congregation, they met those needs. I think this is a really helpful thing for us to think about in our culture today because it's not wrong for us to enjoy the proceeds of hard work. There's nothing wrong with owning a house or any of those sorts of things. The question is, what am I going to do with those things? Is this my space only for me or is this something that I'm willing to use to minister to other people? And that can be to a greater or lesser degree, but the question is not so much the amount as the willingness to use what we have to serve God in various ways. What's this unity based on? This unity is based on the gospel. Look at verse 33. With great power, the apostles were giving testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and abundant grace was on them all. The context for this was their shared faith. Verse 32, those who believed. Verse 33, what did they believe? The resurrection of the Lord Jesus, the gospel message. That was the basis of their unity, their connection with one another. And this stands in contrast to an enforced unity. For example, there have been various points in history and still today in which there are, there are communist or socialist political systems, and that's an enforced unity. You share because we say you must. Or even certain groups that have sort of uh, formed communes or cults or these sorts of things, their perspective on sharing is not so much because of what we believe and our common bond in Christ. We minister to one another. It's rather uh, maybe we are just all opposed to some sort of idea, so we all gather together. There's a variety of reasons and rarely are these groups flowing out of a perspective that we are united around the gospel, and that's the reason that we share. How is this unity shown? This unity is shown both by actions and by attitudes. Verse 34, All who are owners of lands or houses would sell them and bring the proceeds of the sales and lay them at the apostles' feet. The action was to sell property to raise money to meet specific needs. And so this unity of purpose, we are all together in the gospel, was shown by what can we do to minister to those who are likewise believe in the gospel and are part of our congregation. And that's what they would do. They would share these things that they had. What was the attitude? The attitude was to submit 
to the authority of the apostles in the distribution of these funds. In other words, again, sometimes flowing out of our perspective that what I have belongs to me, we want to see that control extending even after the point where we might think that we've actually given it up. So let me illustrate this. Sometimes, uh, perhaps you got a wedding present from someone. Perhaps you got a birthday present from someone, and they gave it to you. And then, later on, they said, hey, are you doing such and such with this thing that I gave to you? Maybe it's just something they gave you offhand. The problem with that is that when we seek to control the use of the gift, once the gift has been given, we haven't fully relinquished control of it. The same thing can be true in the context of the church. We say, well, I'm going to give money to the church, but it can only be used for this very specific thing. In other words, I'm going to designate it as an offering for just this one thing. Instead of saying it's going to be for all the missionaries, I just want it to go to this one missionary. Instead of it being for the general work of the church, I want it to go for this specific thing. Now, I think there's a time and a place for that. But, let me just highlight a few things for you. I don't think that pastors are apostles. I mean, verse 35 says, they laid them at the apostles' feet. Pastors are not apostles. Yet, pastors and leadership of churches should hopefully be trustworthy. If you trust someone to uh, open up God's word to you, hopefully you also trust them to lead the church well in matters of stewardship and finances. Furthermore, a, a correction or a check and balance to that is the fact that congregations have a say and how the monies of the church are used for various projects, particularly for larger amounts. And so with all those things in mind, I just want to sort of put this in your mind to think about. The fact that someone may seek to be helpful when they designate an offering may actually turn out to be a burden. For example, let's say the church needs money to make some sort of major repair, but someone has designated an offering and said, this can only be used for this one specific thing, we can't ethically, even if legally there was an opportunity, take that money and then use it for the repair because you've said it can only be used to buy Sunday school textbooks. Hopefully that illustrates the point that I'm making. Secondly, if it's a gift, I think there's a measure of our willingness to give up our control over that gift. Again, I think there's special circumstances in which that's not true, but I think the example that we see here is that when they are giving this gift to the church, instead of saying, I want it to go to this person or that person or the other person, they say, I want it to go to the needs generally, and they're trusting the apostles in this case to distribute the funds accordingly. And so if you said, you know what, I really want it to go to this one specific person, what could you potentially do? If you see someone in the church body that has a need, and you say, I want to come alongside that person and help them directly, I don't think there's anything wrong with that. But I think that the principle that we see here is that when offerings are given to the church, they're given to go to the needs of the church as a whole. But what is further shown in this passage? Not just this willing sharing based on the gospel, um, shown in attitudes and actions, and, and flowing out of their common bond in Christ, but also that this concern for others is shown has to be shown by outward action. Again, someone can say, I really believe that this is something important that we should do, but if they don't act on that statement of what they say they believe, they're not really showing it. 
And we see this in the specific example of Joseph, who's also called Barnabas. It says, Joseph, a Levite of Cyprian birth, also called Barnabas, who owned a tract of land, sold it and brought the money and laid it at the apostles' feet. I think the first thing that we see about this man is that past action had built for him a reputation. This was someone who was well-known enough in the church body that the apostles had called him Barnabas. So his name had been Joseph, and they called him Barnabas, which being translated means son of encouragement. So if someone says, who is someone who is known for encouraging other people in the church body? They said, that guy, Barnabas, he's someone who encourages other people. Now, why did they give him this title, this nickname, if you will? We don't know. But we do know, based on his later actions, that this seems to fit with the sort of character that he had demonstrated. What were some of his later actions? Think about Acts 9. Paul comes to Jerusalem. Everybody's scared of him, wary of him. No one wants to go near him. Who comes and greets him? Barnabas. Same thing later on. When John Mark gets scared or, or longs for the comforts of home or whatever his motivation was for not continuing with Paul and Barnabas on their missionary journey, and he leaves, who wants to give him a second chance? Barnabas does. Just as an aside, I think he was right in that assessment, but God worked out it anyway and had two mission teams instead of one. We look at this, and we say that his character seems to have contributed to the fact of him being recognized as someone who encouraged other people. But, verse 37, I think I would put it this way, if you may have a past reputation for how you've been up to this point, if you don't continue to demonstrate that that's true, what happens to that reputation? It's shown to be false, or it's shown that you no longer fit the description. And so Barnabas could have done a number of great things up to that point, but then if he had said, well, I have an opportunity to minister to encourage here, and chose not to do it, then that would sort of uh, change people's perspective on what it was that he was doing. And so I think Barnabas recognized that he wasn't going to say that past action was enough, and he willingly gave up what it was that he had in order to meet the needs of these in the congregation. And as we'll see as we get into the next chapter, I am not arguing that anybody who has anything above a certain line has to get rid of it and give it to the church. That's not what I'm arguing for. What I am arguing for is against the attitude that says, everything I have is mine for me and no one else has any claim on it. We have this perspective that we ought to share as we have opportunity of what God has loaned to us. What else do we see from this, this section? We see as we get into chapter 5, we also need to realize that we can't fake Christianity, specifically shown by our attitude toward money in this passage, but by a number of other things as well. Let's read chapter 5, verses 1 through 11, and then we'll go down through it. But a man named Ananias, with his wife Sapphira, sold a piece of property and kept back some of the price for himself, and with his wife's full knowledge... And bringing a portion of it, he laid it at the apostles' feet. But Peter said, Ananias, why has Satan filled your heart to lie to the Holy Spirit and to keep back some of the price of the land? While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? And after it was sold, was it not under your control? Why is it that you have conceived this deed in your heart? You have not lied to men, but to God. And as he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. And great fear came over all who heard of it. 
The young men got up and covered him up, and after carrying him out, they buried him. Now there elapsed an interval of about three hours, and his wife came in not knowing what had happened. And Peter responded to her, Tell me whether you sold the land for such and such a price. And she said, Yes, that was the price. Then Peter said to her, Why is it that you have agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? Behold, the feet of those who have buried your husband are at the door, and they will carry you out as well. And immediately she fell at his feet and breathed her last, and the young men came in and found her dead, and they carried her out and buried her beside her husband. And great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. Now this passage is one that stands as quite problematic for people who have a perspective on God, that the God of the New Testament it is a God of love and charity and is okay with anything that we do within certain boundaries. But the God of the Old Testament was the one who who killed people and judged sin and all those sorts of things, because this doesn't clearly doesn't fit with that sort of a perspective. Another thing that's a challenge for this passage is, what was the sin that God found so significant that he punished them through death? And then furthermore, why is it that this is recorded at this particular point in Luke's account? With regard to that last question, I think that Luke puts it in this account at this time, and God sovereignly orchestrated the circumstance at this time in the church's history to show the contrast between someone who is willingly and genuinely following God and someone who is making a pretense of following God, either because they weren't a Christian or because they were a Christian driven by a lot of wrong motives. What do we see from this passage, first of all, under this idea of not faking Christianity? Why can't you fake Christianity? Because God knows your heart. Because God knows your heart. I know what's stressed, first of all, that God knowing your heart is not primarily about the money. Look at verse 4. You don't have to sell your property, verse 4. While it remained unsold, did it not remain your own? What's he saying there? I think he's saying, Ananias, you didn't have to sell that property. Secondly, if someone sold their property in this context... They didn't have to give all of it to the church. After it was sold, was it not under your control? What was the issue? The issue was this. If they sold their property and they promised it to the church or testified to the church that they were going to give all of it, then they should have done that. Why do I say that? The specific sin for which they are condemned is, verse 3, Why did you keep back some of the price of the land? Verse 4, you have lied not to men, but to God. Their exact sin was keeping back. We see this also in verse 2. They kept back some of the price. This word is not used frequently in the New Testament, but the one other passage where it's used is in Titus 2.10. And it said that slaves are not to keep back their master's property. What's that talking about? Slaves weren't supposed to embezzle. They weren't supposed to use what their masters had said, here's my stuff, take care of it. They weren't supposed to take that and then use it for their own purposes. And certainly we're familiar with examples of this from different businesses and things like that. You have people who use money improperly, they get fired, they go to jail, they they lose a measure of trust and respect. And this is certainly something that I think as we put all these pieces together, we understand better what the specific sin was. Whether it was the common practice of the congregation as a whole to say, if I sell this property, I'm giving it all to the church, or whether that's something that Ananias and Sapphira had specifically done, 
it seems that there had been a an outward commitment of the proceeds of the property to the assembly which they failed to live up to you can think about how this might have come about here's Barnabas here's all these other people they're selling their property they're giving it to the church this is a public act people are looking at it people are praising them for it potentially not that that's the reason these people are doing it but that would probably be a normal result Ananias and Sapphira say hey why don't we do this too but they were not interested in following through all the way so it's not about the money it's about the hard attitude what do I mean by this the church should be a place where we willingly and sacrificially meet needs we saw that in verses 32 to 35 and I think the passage that we'll look at tonight from 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 explains that more for us. And the goal, I think, in the early church was not so everyone had exactly the same amount of things. Again, Mary had a house still. It seems pretty clear that some of the people in the church didn't have a house or didn't have all these sorts of things, but that people made sure their needs were taken care of. So it was not the point that everybody has the same amount of stuff, that if they put a thousand dollars in the pool that everybody gets a hundred dollars if there's ten people that's not the point the point was an attitude of service a willingness to use what God has granted to us for his service to serve him some people are particularly diligent or gifted in this sort of service I think all of us are called to hospitality generosity kindness there are some people for whom that just seems to be an aspect of their life I think Barnabas was one of these people and so, uh, what's a natural response to that? What, what, what naturally happens? They might be recognized. So-and-so is a very giving person. What's a natural human response to someone else getting recognized? I want to be noticed too. And so I think that that's what was going on in Ananias and Sapphira's hearts. And I think like them, we may be tempted to take shortcuts to get recognition without sacrifice and so what would Barnabas do he sold the property he took all the proceeds of it he gave it to the church and presumably was recognized at least by the people that the money helped or potentially by the church in some measure of Thanksgiving we don't know the specifics but that seems to have been what was going on here come Ananias and Sapphira and they say we want that same thing but we want to do it with as little investment as possible. Let's sell the property for $1,000 and let's only give $100 and say, well, we really took a hit on that, but we brought it all and took it to the church. Do you see the difference in attitude that seems to be demonstrated between these two sets of people? How do we know that this wasn't just an accident? It says in verse 2 that Ananias did this with his wife's full knowledge. Verse 4, why have you conceived this deed in your heart? Verse 9, why have you agreed together to put the Spirit of the Lord to the test? This was not an accident. This wasn't just something that was a spur-of-the-moment decision. This is something that they analyzed, calculated, determined beforehand what they could do to get themselves noticed without actually following through on the commitment that they had made. And so I think that this is something that we have to ask ourselves. Why do I serve? Do I serve for a pat on the back so people notice me, so people think well of me? Or do I serve because it honors God whether or not anybody says anything? 
And it could be that no one said anything to Barnabas. The text doesn't say. But we certainly know that we ought not to exaggerate our service to God before other Christians so that they think better of us because who's the praise supposed to be if someone demonstrates an attitude of generosity and hospitality and service and encouragement? Who's supposed to get the praise? God is. It's not about me. It's about God. It's not about you. It's about God. And God knows our hearts. So why can't we get away with a fake sort of Christianity? Because God knows what's going on inside us. Secondly, I think it's very clear that we see that God will purify His church. What do we know about the church? The church is supposed to be a gathering of those who follow Christ. Look at verse 32 of chapter 4 again. The congregation of those who believed. Who's the church? The church is not everyone who gathers within a certain building. The church is everyone who believes. That's the marker. Those who believe. You can be a member of um, many organizations simply for showing up. But the church is different. And the difference is that the thing that means that you're actually and truly a part of that assembly is, do you believe? And probably secondarily, have you committed yourself to that assembly? I've believed in Christ. I have been or am willing to be baptized. I'm joining myself with this group. That's what was true of this assembly. And so, this is why membership follows a profession of belief and baptism here at our church. This is why we should practice church discipline, to make the boundary clear between those who believe and those who don't believe, because the church is supposed to be made up of those who believe. But God is able to judge not just the outward things that we look at when we try to assess is this person a genuine believer? Can they be a part of our assembly? Should they continue as a part of our assembly? God sees beyond all those things to someone's heart. We don't have the ability to do that, but God could see that for Ananias and Sapphira, here were people who seemingly were exemplary members of their congregation, and God knew that they were being hypocrites about it. He saw their hearts. And so we see that those who bring God's name in disrepute, those who bring dishonor to God's name, face consequences. God can punish those who are either unbelievers professing to be Christians or those who are genuine Christians and who are following Him carelessly or with wrong motives. Why do I say this? Unbelievers are constantly in danger of death, what we see here, by the simple fact that they're sinners. If you are born and you have never turned to God, the wages of sin is death, and all of us sin many times in every week. Even the best of people that says, well, say, well, I try not to be that bad of a person, or on the other hand, I try to be a good person. Have you ever lied or stolen or lusted or been greedy or any of these sorts of things? All of us have been guilty of at least one of those, and if we're honest, all of us have been guilty of most of the things that God says not to do. And even if we've said, I've never done something that God says not to do, have we always done everything that God says we should do? Have you always loved your neighbor as yourself? No, because we're selfish. And so when we look at something like this, we recognize 
that the consequences, the wages of sin is death. And in this case, potentially, the wage of sin was death because this was a potentially, if Ananias and Sapphira were believers, it could be that they died for careless sin, for failing to take God seriously, in perhaps a parallel to what we see in 1 Corinthians 11. Paul admonished the Corinthians and said, there are those among you who sleep, those among you who have died, because they haven't taken all of these things seriously in the way that God wants them to be taken seriously. Perhaps that is what took place here. The passage doesn't say, were they believers or were they unbelievers? And I think the lack of clarity on that point should be a warning both for those who don't follow God as Christians and for those who profess to follow God but are kind of in it for themselves. And some people will say, well, but it doesn't say that God killed them. But I think it's very clear that even though there's not a phrase in here that says, and God struck them dead, I think it's very clear that what takes place in this passage was a measure of divine judgment. Because what's it connected to? You have not lied to men, but to God. As he heard these words, Ananias fell down and breathed his last. So what was the specific occasion of his death? It was the exposure of his sin. And the means by which God carried this out is not really the most important thing. I was looking at this passage, and some people were trying to say, well, he, he had this thing where he died of a broken heart, he was overwhelmed by his shame and guilt, all these sorts of things. I don't think the point is for us to try to come up with a scientific explanation for why he died at this specific moment. The point is, by whatever means God brought it about, this was God's judgment for that sin. What's the point? Either way, God's name will be honored. What happened in verse 11? Great fear came over the whole church and over all who heard of these things. I think what happened was people realized that following God was serious business. It wasn't something you got in just to, for people to say, hey, this person is doing this uh, and they're a great person because they're doing this. Or this person is doing this and everybody is doing this. You have to be serious about following God. We were talking about this in the Sunday School Hour. Why do you follow God? Do you follow God simply because it's an accepted thing to do, or on the other hand, because it doesn't require very much of you? Or do you follow God recognizing that the Christian life is not always easy, that God demands sacrifices of us, and that even though these things are true, that following Christ demands commitment and difficulty and all these things from us, that it's worth it? If we don't have that perspective on it, we may be following an incomplete or an inadequate perspective on Christianity. Following God is serious business because God knows all and God can bring it to light. And this is something that we often forget. We say, yeah, God is everywhere. And then when we come to a point of sin, we're like, but probably not right now. That's what goes through our heads. God knew their hearts. God knows our hearts. I'm not saying God's going to strike us dead if we sin in some way this afternoon when we go home. But I am saying the fact that God knew what they were doing ought to remind us that God knows what we're thinking and what we're feeling and what we're doing, even if nobody else around us does. And so that should motivate us to consider carefully whether what we're doing honors God. What's another side effect, result, consequence of this for the early church? I think they evaluated their own hearts and lives for hypocrisy. 
Am I following God or professing to follow God like these two were? Am I in it for something that will bring advantage to me? Or am I in this to actually and genuinely follow God as he wants to be followed? Probably one other thing that this accomplished was both to purify the church and to solidify the authority of the apostles. Because as that group spread, and we see this later as a problem when Paul talks to the Corinthians, there were probably people that were starting to say, well, maybe we don't have to follow these guys. Maybe we can sort of go our own way. And I think God is strengthening the leadership of the early church and saying, no, God has granted the leadership and the authority and the wisdom to the apostles, so you need to listen to what they're saying and follow them and, and, and submit to them. And I'm not drawing a parallel to local churches because I don't think that's the point that needs to be drawn from here, but I think that God is capable of purifying his church. I talked a moment ago about the idea of church discipline. That's our job. To the extent that we know of things and, and, and sin comes up, we ought to deal with that sin. But we ought to also recognize that there may be sins that no one knows about and no one sees. God's more than capable of dealing with those on his own. And so I think both things are important perspectives. Coming back to this question of hypocrisy, why don't people often want to come to church? Churches are full of hypocrites. And to a certain extent, that's true. Because if we're honest, all of us are hypocritical at some point or another. We say one thing and we do another. We say one thing and our reason for doing it isn't the right reason. And so part of the response is, yes, you're right. But so is everything else in this life. Part of the other response is that the good example of Barnabas here reminds us that we don't have to be. It seems that he genuinely did it because he wanted to honor God and he wanted to serve other people. So we don't have to be hypocrites when we come to church. And the story of Ananias and Sapphira reminds us why we should not be. Because God can see what's going on in our hearts and lives. And even if other people don't know what's going on, God can bring it to light. God can bring it to judgment. God takes lying in his, uh, before him seriously. Especially when it attacks the unity of the church or whether it drags his name through the mud. Here are people who are saying, I honor God, but they're lying about it. Here are people who are saying, I'm at one with the people of the church and they're in it to serve themselves. God takes that seriously. And so we have to ask ourselves, am I going to follow God wholeheartedly and am I going to minister in the church sincerely or am I here to serve myself as I outwardly profess to follow God? And so going back to what we talked about at the beginning, do we want to be noticed when we do things? I think it's a natural human instinct. Are we prone to jealousy when other people are noticed from doing things? Potentially. Is it right for us to lie so we get the recognition that we think that we need? No. What should this passage provoke us to do? Psalm 139.24 says this, Search me, O God, and know my heart. See if there is any wicked way in me, and lead me in the way everlasting. And so I'd encourage every one of us to examine our hearts, because God will build and He will protect His church, and so let's not find ourselves opposing that. Again, do we see things about money and giving and all that in this passage? Yes. But what's the bigger issue? Am I genuinely following God, or am I doing Christian things because it gets me something. Let's do it because it's really true of what we believe and that we have a relationship with God. Let's pray. Lord, as we look at these truths from your word, 
We're reminded of the seriousness of following after you. I pray that you would help us to take following you seriously, not to see it as something that we do half-heartedly as an after-the-fact sort of idea or any of these sorts of things, but that we would do it genuinely and honestly and in a way that honors you because that's how we should do everything for you with all our heart and soul and mind and strength so that you might gain glory and so that your church might be built. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. You would